Hey everyone, it's Megan, the Family Finance Mom, adding a new weekly segment to Finance Explained. Now, in addition to financial deep dives and expert interview episodes each season, I'll be posting Q&A replays once a week. I host these sessions live every Wednesday at 9 a.m. over on Instagram. If you'd like to have your questions answered, look for the question box in my Instagram stories ahead of each session or join live and ask in the comments. But to make it easier for you to listen to the replays on the go, in segments and at your convenience, you can now listen here. First question is, things to consider buying long-term care insurance. How do I know the company will exist in 20 to 30 years? So this is like a long-standing concern with any type of insurance that has a long-dated payout, especially with things like, you know, not only long-term care insurance, but also things like life insurance, right? Whether you're taking out a term life policy or especially if you're taking out a whole life policy, which I don't tend to recommend, um, you know, you're looking at somebody that you're going to be paying premiums to for multiple decades And if you need it, you want to make sure they're around to pay out um, on the policy multiple decades from now. So this is something that people have been looking at and evaluating for a long time. There's a couple things that I would point to is one, insurance companies have ratings, just like we have credit rating agencies that rate the credit of any borrower. Um, The same is true for insurance companies. So that's kind of data point one that you can point to and look at. The other data point that you can look at, while long-term care insurance may not have been around as long as some other forms of insurance, you know, things like basic life insurance, as an example, um, the companies that are underwriting these various policies have been around for a long time. Most of them have been around for a long time. So you can look at their, you know, track record, how long they've been in existence. And I would kind of tend to avoid companies that may not have as long a track record um, because a lot of them, if they have been around for a long time, lots of them are also publicly traded companies. So their financials are available online. You can take a look at sort of like, what have their loss ratios been? Um, What do their financials look like? Do they look like they're in good financial health? Um, what do various like news coverage of this company say about the company? Um, you know, there are entities, for example, like Berkshire Hathaway, which, yeah, they own a lot of other businesses, but fundamentally started as an insurance company. That's Warren Buffett's company. It's been around for forever. They own a whole bunch of different like insurance companies within their umbrella. Somebody like that, you probably have a lot more confidence that they're going to be around for the long haul than say, you know, I don't know, ABC Insurance Inc. that maybe just started yesterday as an example. But those would be the things that I would look at. I would take a look at, like I said, they have ratings um, for underwriters, insurance companies, just like they do credit ratings for you know debt issuers. So you can take a look at those to get a, a gauge of kind of the health of the company. And then as assuming that they're public, you can also take a look at kind of their financials and you can get a sense of kind of their longevity. The other thing that I would encourage you to do when you're shopping for, especially some of these kind of more specialty policies, which I would sort of characterize long-term care insurance in that bucket, it can be really helpful to work with an independent insurance broker. And what do I mean by independent? Independent insurance brokers essentially run their own agencies to source insurance for their clients 
and they're not wedded to any one company. So they're very well-versed in reviewing policies. They work with all different insurance companies to kind of find and meet the needs of the client base that is coming to them. And they are going to be able to help you navigate and know like, you know, well, we've had a bad experience with this underwriter, so we don't use them anymore. Or we've used this insurance underwriter for the last 20 years, as an example. Um, and so it's just somebody who has an expertise in dealing and navigating through all of that. So, um, you know, that's another route that you can go uh, in terms of making sure you're getting kind of expert opinion, expertise in an area that you might not have expertise in and to kind of help guide you as to what are the things you should be looking at to get comfortable and confident that, hey, I'm buying a policy that I'm going to be paying on for the next 20 or 30 years. And in 30 years when I need to use it, I want to make sure these people are around. But it's a good question to ask. Definitely something you want to think about and pay attention to. And it's probably something that not a lot of people do think about, but absolutely should. So good question. Okay, next question. Where to invest about $10,000 that kids will need in about seven years out? So I get asked questions like this in various kind of flavors and permutations all the time. And the best way I can answer it is to kind of put a question back to you, which is, what do you want the money to be used for? And the reason you need to ask, so the questions typically when it comes to investing that you want to answer is, what are you investing for, first and foremost? The second is time horizon, which you addressed here. So seven years out, that's definitely a good time horizon. That's sort of beyond the five-year, which I would characterize as kind of the short to medium term and starting to approach that longer term time horizon where it, it does make sense maybe to take some additional risk and actually put it to work, say like in the stock market um, or in equities and things like that, which you do wanna have kind of a longer runway and a longer time horizon for investing. So like I said, what do you wanna invest for? What is your time horizon? And then the third thing you wanna kind of address is what is your risk comfort level? Like what is your appetite for taking risk? Are you comfortable kind of riding out the ups and downs and the volatility that comes with, say, investing in the stock market? Or are you, you know, is it important to you to have greater certainty and less volatility? Because answering those three questions is going to help guide you as to what the right answer is for you. The reason the first thing you want to answer is what do you want to, like, what are you investing for? What are you saving this money for? Is because the answer to that question may give you access to more tax advantaged options. So for example, especially when it comes to kids, many people are looking at saving for future college education expenses. If that is the purpose of your saving for your kids, then a 529 plan, which is a um, tax advantaged college savings plan, may be the best option for you to consider. Um, the way that it works is you would put that money in um, it goes in on an after-tax basis, so there's no tax deduction today, but any gains that you accrue on it are tax-deferred and remain so, so long as those funds, when you withdraw them, are used for qualified educational expenses once you withdraw the funds. So that could be a huge benefit, right? Because if you're not having to pay capital gains year in and year out, those funds can stay invested, they can compound, they can grow faster, and you never pay taxes on those gains so long as the funds are used for their intended purpose of education. 
The other thing that is new starting in 2024, um, and I'm not going to remember exactly the legislation that passed it, but it was something that passed in the last year or so, is there is now um, one of the big concerns with families in using a 529 plan was that, well, what if my child doesn't go to college? Or what if they choose to do something other than college? And like, what happens to that money? You're never going to lose the money. But if you weren't using it for qualified education expenses, you would then just have to pay taxes on the withdrawal. And there was a small tax penalty associated with it. You could always change the beneficiary to somebody else that might use it for college. So say you have one kid either that maybe gets a full scholarship or maybe they choose to go into the military, which by the way, there are also um, exceptions that waive the tax penalty and that can be one of them. Um, and so you could just change the beneficiary to have it be used for someone else. You could use it yourself even and make yourself the beneficiary. You could use it and designate the grandchild as a beneficiary. But a new law that goes into effect in 2024 also now allows you to roll over 529 funds to a Roth IRA. So to the extent that your child doesn't use all the funds in their college savings account um, for whatever reason, you can then roll over a portion of those funds. There's a cap on it, like a lifetime cap on it, but you could roll over those funds to jumpstart their retirement savings. Um, so it makes it another feature of a college savings plan that kind of removes some of the concerns and overhangs that some people may have had with using it um, to encourage people to use it to not only pay for your child's college, but potentially even jumpstart their retirement savings as well. So again, if you can tell me or define for yourself, what is the reason I'm saving this money, then that can help better guide kind of where you like the account you want to park it in to then decide like how you want to invest it. So that's kind of one option. If you want greater flexibility around those funds, um, another option is something like a UTMA. It's essentially a trust account for minors because in many states, minors cannot directly hold um, investment securities or directly have an, a brokerage account in their name. But if you open one of these like trust accounts, you designate your child as the beneficiary of the trust account, you act as the fiduciary or the manager who kind of oversees how it all works. Um, that is another potential option you could go down, but you're not gonna get kind of the same tax benefits um, that you would on the other. Because it is the trust account of a minor, um, it does have kind of, it might not be taxed at the same rate that say you as an individual are currently taxed at. So there can be some tax advantages to it, um, but you're not going to get like full tax deferral um, like you would on a college savings plan. So again, the answer for you is ultimately going to come down to kind of deciding what is the intended purpose of those funds, because that's going to give you different options with different tax profiles. Um, and then once you have kind of the account that you want it to be in, um, then how you choose to invest it is really going to depend on like how comfortable you are with taking different levels of investment risk. And then also like how much certainty do you need around the lump sum at the end of the investment period. Um, for a seven-year time horizon, I would say most people could probably get pretty comfortable 
investing kind of in like an S&P 500 index fund. If you wanted to have some greater diversification, maybe you put it kind of in a bit more balanced portfolio that has both equities and some bond exposure to it. Um, and, you know, if you don't want to take any risk at all right now, like you could put it into a CD for a significant period of time that locks your money up so you don't have access to it for a specific period of time, but it's going to give you a guaranteed rate of return. And because interest rates are currently still relatively high, you can lock in some of that return, that high return, even if interest rates start to get cut later this year. So those are all kind of like a range of options and risk profiles to consider. Um, and I know I probably gave you more questions to think about than not, um, but the reality is, is that there is no kind of one size fits all right answer for everyone when it comes to investing. It's really, and this is what I try to do here with all of you, is better help you understand and build your financial literacy so that you feel more comfortable and confident making these decisions for yourself. Um, or if you don't feel confident making the decisions for yourself, at least arming you with enough information that if you go and talk to a financial advisor or you go and talk to a financial planner, um, you feel more confident navigating and understanding the advice that they're giving you so that you take action. Um, but anyway, I hope that that kind of helps um, at least give you a framework to think about in evaluating kind of your choices and options for putting money aside for your kids. Uh, okay, I think that was all the questions that were officially submitted last night. So if anybody listening live has more that they'd like to add, I will hang out for a few minutes to take those. A few things I wanna make you guys aware of, it is a incredibly busy week in terms of economic data, earning season. Um, there's a whole lot of financial data and economic data coming out this week. And you're seeing that in kind of the volatility and the behavior of the market. Um, I haven't seen what the market has done since it's open, but before I hopped on in pre-market trading, um, the NASDAQ, which is kind of the tech heavy index of the market was down nearly a percent in pre-market trading. The S&P 500 was down about half a percent, which is kind of a reversal of what we've seen happen um, in the latter half of 2023. And granted, it's one day, right? But in the latter half of 2023 and early into and so far in January, we've seen really strong market rally. And you've heard me kind of mention that it like the market is kind of priced for perfection, meaning that valuation ratios are really high. Um, everybody's kind of banking on that the Fed is going to cut interest rates later this year, and that's being reflected in the market continuing to trade higher and higher. But with that comes any misstep is going to cause the market to falter. And we saw some missteps yesterday. We're in the middle of Q4 earnings season. That simply means that for publicly traded companies, they have to report quarterly earnings once a year, or once every quarter. And that tends to happen around the same time frame because companies tend to have the same quarter end. So for companies who had Q4 ending in 12:31, you're now starting to see them report earnings. The first kind of week or so of earnings season is often like major financial companies, so banks and things like that, and their earnings were pretty shaky. This week, we're starting to see reports from big tech companies, and in particular, yesterday, Google reported earnings after the market closed. And while their 
earnings, meaning like their earnings per share um, met and even kind of exceeded estimates a little bit. They had some top line, meaning revenue misses on major categories like ad revenue. And so that's sort of, you know, oftentimes when the economy gets shaky, that's where people, where businesses stop, you know, cut spending is on advertising and marketing. And so that's sort of people saying like, eh, things are getting a little shaky out there. Another big miss that happened yesterday was Starbucks. Um, they had major misses both on the top line and at the earnings level. And so all of that is weighing on, you know, we've talked a little bit about the Magnificent Seven, which includes Google. So lots of people are sort of plowing their funds into those, you know, very small number of very large stocks, which are now overweight in the marketplace. Um, and so to the extent any of those companies show any signs of faltering, there's likely going to be an outsized reaction in the market because they represent an outsized portion of the stock market. Now, all of that being said, I'm in favor of not trying to time the market, investing consistently over time for the long term. And oh, by the way, over the last hundred or so years, um, the market has on average returned nine to 10% a year through all the ups and downs along the way. But I say all of this to keep you informed about why you might be seeing heightened volatility in the market. Part of it is we're in earnings season right now. The other part of it is, as I mentioned, there's a whole lot of economic data coming out right now. Yesterday, we got the job openings report. Today, we're getting the employment cost index, which is something the Fed looks at really closely as an inflation indicator. The employment cost index says, how much is the cost of employees changing? That is a prime kind of data point that drives the cost for many employers and can contribute to inflation. The tight labor market that we've seen over the last couple of years has driven wages up at a much higher pace growth rate than is typical or that we normally see. And so if employers are experiencing higher costs in the form of wages, they pass those on to their consumers in the form of higher prices. And so if we see wages cool, this comes out quarterly, um, that's a sign that perhaps there's room for inflation to cool further. Um, and in particular, where inflation kind of remains heightened and trending higher than all the other categories is in services. And in services, especially the um, inflation in services is heavily driven by the cost of labor. So that's something that the Fed's going to be focused on today, which leads me to the next big thing that is happening today, which is today is the end of the first FOMC meeting of the year. That stands for Federal Open Market Committee. The Federal Open Market Committee is the governing body of the Federal Reserve, which is our central bank. Oh, sorry about that. <coughs> Excuse me. Are we back? Okay. Sorry, there was a call. I'm going to try to, let's see. Okay, are we back? Sorry, I had a call come in. I just turned it up to do not disturb so that doesn't happen again. Um, what was I saying? Okay, so the Federal Open Market Committee is the governing body of the Fed that sets monetary policy as our central bank. And very plain speak, that means they're the ones deciding whether interest rates go up or down. And they're doing that based on the data they, they see coming in from the economy. 
And so today, and yes, they met yesterday and today, this afternoon at two o'clock, there will be a formal statement that is released that indicates kind of what their plan and policy will be. And then there will be a press conference at 2.30 where the Fed Chairman Jerome Powell will address questions. I would say nobody expects them to announce that they're cutting rates today, but they will be listening very carefully to any change in the wording of the statement, any change in kind of tone and demeanor, any kind of indication or guidance as to when they think they will cut rates this year. I think generally speaking, the market, when I say the market, it's people are looking at the yield curve. So how they're pricing in interest rates over time to say when they think rates will be cut. And I believe the latest thing I read is they say the market is basically like 50% pricing in a rate cut at the March meeting, which is the next meeting. Um, when will they cut rates? They're going to cut rates when they see certainty that inflation is back down to kind of their 2% long run average target. And two, as long as um, unemployment remains low, which it still remains low, the labor market still remains relatively tight, even though it's starting to loosen up around the edges. Um, as long as unemployment remains in good shape, there is less pressure on the Fed to cut interest rates. And so, yes, inflation is subsiding. That is all really well and good, but unemployment remains really low. Wage growth still remains probably like about two times higher than kind of the long-term average. Inflation in the services sector, which is a big part of our economy, it's the largest part of our economy, is still around 4% versus kind of that 2% long-run target. So there are still some inflationary pressures out there that the Fed is going to be monitoring and watching and gives them reason not to rush into cutting interest rates just yet, especially as long as the economy continues to hold up. Um, so anyway, I hope that kind of gives some highlights as to what's going on this week. There was one more question that came in I wanted to take. It says, maybe a strange question, never any strange questions, all questions are welcome. It says, but my husband's grandmother passed away a few weeks ago and they are planning and paying for the funeral. What are your thoughts on paying or for paying for or paying or pre-planning for our funerals or can they be paid for by life insurance? So this is a really good question and oftentimes these are the things that like nobody talks about, right? Like nobody wants to talk about the end of their life. Nobody wants to talk about like death, but when these things happen in life, it does kind of, and you are going through it with somebody else, especially a family member, it can create kind of the opening to think about it for yourself. And especially as you're experiencing it with a family member, you can realize like, not to sound callous, but like the inconvenience and the financial burden that can be associated with some of these things. Funerals are not cheap. They can be tens of thousands of dollars. Um, and so to the extent that your family or you yourself or, you know, the person who's passing away that their estate doesn't have like that kind of liquid cash available to pay for it, where is that money going to come from? And yes, it could be paid for or reimbursed out of life insurance when a life insurance policy pays out. <clears throat> but a couple things to be aware of is one, that can take time. It's not like somebody passes away today and 24 hours later, the life insurance policy gets paid out. Oftentimes you have to 
produce a death certificate. Um, if there's concerns or questions around, surrounding kind of like the circumstances of a death, it could delay those payouts. Um, all uncomfortable things that you don't want to think about or talk about, but there, it's not like an instantaneous thing. The other thing that can happen too is especially like if somebody's death is young and unexpected, which is awful, you also haven't planned for like transition or access of financial information, right? So you may not, or somebody, you know, in your immediate family may not necessarily have instant access to your accounts, to your finances, to be able to pay for these things. And so they may be having to come out of their own pocket. And it's like I said, it's not insignificant. So it can make sense to pre-plan and prepay for some of these things. And oh, by the way, oftentimes if you are doing that, um, you're also paying them at today's prices where, you know, as we've all experienced, inflation only makes the cost of things go up over time. Um, I know for both of my grandparents, uh, when they passed away, it was like everything was done. Like they had already picked their plots. They had already like secured where the place was going to be. And they had done this years ahead of them being ill and entering into kind of that stage of their life. Um, and they even had it down to like, this is the math. This is who I want to say the math. This is like the songs I want sung. These are the passages I want read. Um, and so, you know, it kind of just, if you have the means, I would say it can be something that you are alleviating the stress of from the family members around you during a time which, you know, a period of grief when you've lost someone that's a hard period to deal with emotionally to then have the added burden of trying to plan and take care of and pay for something that is extremely costly. Um, if you can alleviate that concern, I would definitely kind of like encourage you to pursue that. Um, and like I said, you're thinking about it because, and I, you know, my condolences to your family and losing your grandmother, but oftentimes it is situations like that, that bring all of that up where you're actually, you know, you don't really think about it on a day-to-day -day basis, but suddenly when you're at a funeral home and you find out like that a funeral costs can cost upwards of tens of thousands of dollars, um, you know, suddenly it's something like, oh, this is something maybe I should think about and plan for. So good question. And like I said, to the extent that you have the means, um, you know, it's definitely something that you might want to plot out and plan for. And then obviously to the extent that, you know, God forbid anybody ever experiences something where that becomes a more imminent concern, you know, maybe it's a negative health diagnosis or a terminal illness or something like that, that oftentimes can kind of like at least give you a runway to prepare and think about before it actually happens. Um, and in that case is something, you know, you definitely might want to consider and put prepare and plan for. Um, but good question. And I think it's it's good to raise it um, because like I said, when we're all in various stages of our youth, especially when we're parents and we're raising young children, the last thing you want to think about is that you might not be here someday. Um, but the reality is that we're all not going to be here someday. And there are costs associated even with that process. Um, so to the extent that you can relieve those from the people who will be grieving your loss, um, it's definitely a smart thing to think about. Um, so anyway, good questions today. 
Uh, like I said, there's lots going on in the market. There's lots going on kind of economic data wise this week. The things to watch for today that I'll be covering in stories. One, we got housing price updates yesterday. So I'll be putting that out shortly. Just kind of an update on the overall housing market. Um, the other big data point coming out today, as I mentioned, is the employment cost index. That is essentially in terms of both wages and benefits, the cost of hiring to employers, which is a contributor to inflationary pressure. It comes out quarterly. So the last time we got this data point was back in September. It has been coming down from its peak. So it peaked at around 5.1%, which means that's how fast it was growing year over year. Um, I believe that was like in 2022. Uh, and has since subsided a little bit, but it's still like high 4% growth rate annually. And the norm kind of over a long period of time is more like 2.5%. Um, so typically wage and benefit growth has exceeded inflation because there are productivity gains associated with it. Um, but we need to see that come back down to that level in order to also see service inflation um, continue to subside. So the Fed will be focused on that today. Then this afternoon, we have the Fed meeting. Tomorrow and today, we continue to have big earnings from major tech companies, including those among the Magnificent Seven. So the market will be focused on those. Um, I'm trying to think what else. Is come Oh, and Friday, the big thing that people will be looking at is the employment report for January. The first Friday of every month is Jobs Friday. We get a comprehensive report on the unemployment rate and also just kind of like the labor force itself um, and what's happening with payrolls. And post-holiday season, we'll be interested to see kind of like what's happening in the jobs market. And remember, that's what the Fed is really focused on in making these decisions around interest rates. They're focused on their two-pronged mission, as outlined by Congress, of stable prices, so keeping inflation in check. And the second part is promoting full employment. Full employment, there's no official definition, but historically has targeted sort of around that 4 to 4.5% unemployment rate. Over the last call it year or so, it's been in the high threes which by kind of historical standards is near record lows. So the labor market is still tight. Unemployment is still relatively low, but it's starting to loosen up around the edges. We're starting to see more layoff announcements every single day. Um, so, you know, it's one of those things where people are quitting less because the labor market is a little shakier than it had been. The great resignation is over. You're not seeing this huge spike in people leaving their jobs. And part of that is that job openings are declining. Um, there's not sort of the free-for-all that like, I can go get a job anywhere anymore. Um, the way that there was kind of call it over the last two-ish years post-pandemic. So the labor market is effectively kind of returning to normal is how I would characterize it. Um, but anyway, those are the things I'll be watching and monitoring and talking about this week. Keep your questions coming. It's your questions that make um, this dialogue every week, informative and helpful for everyone. If you're just joining live, you can always catch the replay both here on Instagram. I also upload the audio portion to my podcast, Finance Explained, so you can catch it there as well. Um, and if you want to subscribe to my newsletter, you'll get it emailed directly to your inbox every Thursday morning, uh, or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts to never miss an episode. So have a great rest of the week and I will be back here next Wednesday at 9 a.m. to take your questions again.
Thanks for listening to today's Q&A replay. As a reminder, to get your questions answered, be sure to follow me on Instagram at Family Finance Mom and look for the question box in my stories ahead of each live session or join live Q&A at 9 a.m. Eastern every Wednesday. Any resources mentioned in today's replay can also be found in today's show notes.